a lot of people don't necessarily think illegal wildlife is a crime. This is kind of the fourth largest crime being done. It estimated one to two trillion dollars. You're listening to Dr. Scott Grove, a subject matter expert with ACAMS, the Association of Certified Anti-Money Laundering Specialists. Welcome to the Fraud Fighter Podcast. That the financial flows are really huge and it's leading to this overall criminalization around this problem. In this episode, we discuss why investigating illegal wildlife trade is important, the financial effects of illegal plants and wildlife trade to society, and the training and resources available to identify this problem. Dr. Scott Grove was a previous guest in episode 14. I had a chance to re-interview Dr. Grove. He conducts training for ACAMS about various topics. One topic in particular was about illegal trade of wildlife and natural resources. His expertise about this subject was educational to me, and I wanted to share it with you on the podcast. So, here's my interview with Dr. Grove. I hope you enjoy it. Dr. Scott Grove... From ACAMS, welcome to the Fraud Fighter Podcast. Thanks, Robert. Great to be back. Yes, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. You were on episode 14, and during that period of time, we talked about ACAMS and what it does and the credentialing process and how it helps society in general and the banks. And one of the things that we talked about offline, which I thought was quite interesting, was illegal wildlife trade. And the reason why I wanted to bring you back on the podcast is I had an opportunity to teach overseas a couple of times. And one of the places where I went to was Indonesia, and I also went through Hong Kong. Uh, And when I was teaching there, the national police in Indonesia, we were discussing anti-money laundering and tax evasion and techniques and how to calculate it and, and work through the process and the problems and how to develop a case. And one of the issues that they were talking about is illegal wildlife trade or natural resources being stolen. I never knew that was a problem. I live in the United States, North Carolina. I just didn't know there's an issue here. But when you and I were talking offline, you were mentioning that that is a really big problem. So I want to bring you back on the podcast. and I really do appreciate your time doing so. How were you exposed to this problem with the illegal wildlife trade? How did you get into this? I had a webinar in which uh, we had some folks from Homeland Security just kind of talking. And and I was at, in Hong Kong at the time, and we were discussing kind of illegal wildlife trade going through Hong Kong. And as you noted with Indonesia, that is a hot spot. And the U.S. government has a variety of law enforcement. And by the way, congrats on your, the pivot and all your service that you've done for the U.S. government and in helping us in really addressing this problem, because this has been an existing problem that we're talking years, because with the Lacey Act, that came in the 1900s. But what has happened over the last 20 years is criminal syndicates have gotten much more emboldened uh, around this problem because they make so much money and you're talking about very low fines. And so this mix of crimes, because you're talking about smuggling, 
And Hong Kong happened to be an area that, whether it's ivory, pangolins, uh, rhino, it is a a nexus spot for a lot of trafficking because it's a financial and, and logistics hub. Exactly what you saw. You spent some time in Hong Kong uh, for ACAMs, I believe, correct? Three years there and 11 years altogether. So is this a just a East Asia problem or is this a global problem? Is there, is there a problem here in the United States or is it just when it comes to illegal wildlife trade? I think of the tiger that gets slaughtered in Indonesia because they want the liver, because it's supposed to do some great stuff for the medicine, and there's some Chinese demand because it makes you a stronger individual, so people are buying it in order to take it as a medicine. That's what I think of. Am I being too narrow in that focus, or is it greater than that? Certainly with COVID, traditional Chinese medicine has gotten a lot of focus, uh, primarily because uh, pangolins are are viewed as one of the contributors to possibly COVID. And and obviously, this has raised illegal wildlife trade to everyone's attention. Uh, But it is uh, too narrow, because when you look at IWT, you are talking about not only ivory, tigers, uh, bear bladder, all of these things that are being essentially sourced in Africa and taken into Asia. In the Americas, you're talking about rare birds, turtles and tortoises, uh, rare fish, timber. There's a lot of timber trade. And to give you the extent of the dimension of this, bra, this is kind of the fourth largest crime being done. It estimated one to $2 trillion. And you're talking about within this 15 to $20 billion just illegal wildlife trade, timber, 100 to 150 billion. So you're talking about very large numbers, and it's global. It's not restricted to just Asia. Why does this matter? Question number one, why does this matter from the United States perspective? And then number two is why does it matter from a global perspective? So certainly it matters to us. The Lacey Act's been around since the 1900s, and the U.S. has taken a very strong stance in conservation of wildlife. But also what you see is, you know, when I talked about the criminal syndicates taking over, you have all these facilitators. You're talking about large amounts of illegal money entering the financial system. You know, you have consumers and facilitators not understanding that they're helping to escalate and decimate flora and fauna. And with FATF raising this issue back in June, that the financial flows are really huge, and it's leading to this overall criminalization around this problem. Imagine this. Someone goes into your backyard, steals your dog and all your flowers, and resells it. Imagine our parks and protected areas having the same thing. People are profiting from areas like fishing, that are restricted and are breeding grounds, they're hurting our, our own industries. Let me give you an example that I that I heard about about 10 years ago. You have a boat, you have some fishermen, you probably have some loggers on that boat. They go to some island, let's say in Indonesia. We'll just do Indonesia for a second. They go to the island, they see these particular trees that are very rare. I think it's ebony is one of the trees. And... They clear it out, they put it on the boat, and I guess they send it to 
some port somewhere. How does that get to the criminal syndicate? Question number one is, how does that get into the financial institution? Number two is, how do you even detect that type of thing? So what you identified in Indonesia happens quite a lot in a lot of lesser developed countries where people will come in and clear cut, whether it's uh, rosewood or ebony or or any number of things. They need to obviously transport that because it's going to be used in manufacturing of furniture or some type of item. And they're going to be using trade-based money laundering because the goods have to be uh, sold, the amounts are big. So you're going to have to use a financial institution or MSB or something similar. Because to facilitate that trade, you're going to need invoices, you need logistics, you're going to need a variety of people to kind of transport that. And so what happens is the money laundering goes into the financial system as a natural way of moving the goods. Now, the red flags tend to be Uh, You're operating a shell company or a front company, and the business rationale behind that company is not consistent necessarily with the manner of the business. So a financial institution should be able to, to understand their clients' purchases and sales and really understand that business profile. Additionally, on some transactions, you're going to see types of transactions that don't necessarily make sense. So there are a variety of high risk industries. So certainly logging companies, furniture companies, certain cash intensive businesses in the seafood industry, if it's with fishing, and they're not going to necessarily be in areas or operating in areas that would be safe and sound. So they're they're operating in high risk jurisdictions, they're high risk industries, and the types of transactions would, would not be consistent with the type of business that we typically, and those are some consistent red flags that we see come up time over time. And the reason why they're consistently the same is the criminals don't really care. They're making so much money and the detection is so hard that they're they're rather kind of flamboyant about it. So let's go back to the boat that's hauling this freshly cut down lumber. I'm just making this up, of course. Let's assume it makes its way to, let's say, Hong Kong. How does this get into the financial institution where you have raw, uncut lumber? We'll just use that for example. And you have to take it down to a lumber mill, put it down into sheets of wood that that, that can be used, and then ultimately sold to a third party somewhere. How does this actually get into the financial institution? You're talking about trade-based money laundering. How does this actually work? So there's going to be two types of flows. The flow of money and the flow of goods. So in order to get, let's say, the timber, you're going to have to pay certain people to source it from Indonesia. You're going to need a facilitator. You're likely going to have to bribe uh, some official. And so you will initially have to send the money some way. So think of it like an investor or or the criminal gang will have to essentially uh, find that person who's going to source the, the timber. Also have to move that timber from Indonesia to, let's say, a destination point like Hong Kong, and then ultimately to where it's going to need to be manufactured or where the end user is going to pay for it. Right. But the criminal is going to essentially use 
wire transfers from banks or an MSB uh, remittance, or even nowadays, they're going to use all of this virtual currency to essentially get the miners. Typically, they're going to have to pay someone to forge documentation. So there's going to be some kind of bribery or facilitation. And so the money will go out to get the goods coming back. Now, ultimately, the criminals get paid by the end user. And many times these the furniture company will not really know that this is illegal because in the country that they're, let's say, operating in, there may not be a particular kind of law against the extraction of that timber. And so it'll follow any type of kind of regular trade. There'll be uh, invoices and it's a business. It's a business in which, you know, the criminal syndicates are the expert exporter and importer, and then they're paying facilitators to essentially bring the goods uh, to the port, and then the criminals profit by essentially transfer of goods and money across countries. I may have made it too complicated. I guess the bottom line is you can take a boat full of lumber, go down to the port, bribe a custom inspector to allow it to go in, and once it's in the country... You sell it to a furniture manufacturer who says, "Oh, Absolutely. great, it's ebony. It's fantastic. Oh, it's it's legit. It's the real stuff." But yep. and then then all of a sudden, it's the country Indonesia that's out of out of value because they've been uh, someone's clear cut an island with with all this stuff, and then no Absolutely. one knows about it, it until years later. And this happens in places like Sarawak, or you know, they're they're isolated, or they're not particularly law enforcement that strong. You know, in some of these places, they're just landing boats, clear cutting, and then moving. And you know, many times people don't even realize it. And this happens in the even in the United States, with people don't don't necessarily uh, realize this. This happens pretty much globally. How does it happen in the United States? So there's a variety of uh, parklands that people go in and harvest timber. And it's very hard in some of these rural areas to really know if something's happening. So you have a variety of kind of call it resources that are in parklands, whether it's illegal mining, whether it's illegal harvesting of timber, birds, fish are probably the, the thing that gets harvested the most. Protected areas where people just encroach on protected areas and and essentially fish. And you have a variety of uh, fleets or, or timber cutters that work illegally. And they, they t- tend to, to find easy areas. So the crime syndicates, frankly, finance all this because at the end of the day, it's just a fish. It's just a piece of wood. And because it's not a violent crime, per se, that they just get fined, don't fish here, go fish somewhere else, and then that's kind of the end of it. Absolutely. The community generally doesn't realize or object because you know, it's something as big as clear-cutting. Most people would think, oh, you you have a permit, you have all the right approvals. Why would uh, I object? Or if it's a criminal uh, gang, they're sufficiently kind of organized that they do it in such a way that's very efficient and quick. That by the time you realize they've harvested, whether it's timber or fish or whatever, they do it so efficiently. They've gotten so good at it. Can you give me an example of a case, and you don't have to use names if you don't want to, of something that you worked on that dealt with natural resources? 
Yeah, the, the most recent is Operation Apex. And to give you an idea, uh, Operation Apex is uh, the harvesting of shark fins. You had a variety of facilitators located in the United States, Florida, where it kind of started, uh, but California also got involved, where there are individuals that were part of a criminal syndicate, the Woost syndicate. They hired people to go out and essentially do shark finning in the Pacific Ocean. Now, shark fin is used in soups in Asia, so there is a high demand. And while there is a lot of effort to try to stop this practice, people who are struggling will go out and fish for shark fins. They'll capture sharks, cut the fins off, and kill them. And then they'll just package it and send it to Hong Kong. Now, this was a very big operation, Homeland Security, Wildlife Department, and Hong Kong Police and Customs all participated in this operation in trying to catch it, and they were able to prosecute. A lot of sharks were killed in the process, and a lot of times what you find is this is also connected with drugs and other crimes. So these smugglers get very good at one thing. They branch out into other things very quickly. Is it because the drugs are being smuggled with the shark fins or is just the logistics of sending, uh, let's say, a kilo of cocaine from point A to point B is about the same thing as sending a shark fin from point A to point B? The latter. They get so efficient at hiding and manipulating either with fraudulent invoices or or hiding the goods. They're so good at it. They they do things like people, narcotics, arms, and illegal wildlife. So what steps are taken to stop this? What's the government's doing or the private sector doing? U.S. law enforcement has been doing a lot of outreach globally. What has happened most recently, as I said before, is Financial Action Task Force has provided some guidance to that prompts banks to now really focus on this. There has been an international effort really to start looking at the transactional flows and identifying the red flags across what we call the natural resource value chain, which includes kind of the sourcing, the transportation, uh, which is export and import, and then the ultimate use. So financial institutions are now looking at the types of transactions across that chain to identify where there are weak spots and where there's certain criminal activity that needs to be elevated and reported on. I know you're with ACAMS, and ACAMS is the leader when it comes to international money laundering trading, in my opinion, uh, with, with the banks, particularly financial institutions. What's ACAMS doing because of all this? How are they teaching their members about illegal wildlife trade? Yeah, we've we've committed to to address this problem in two ways. The first is we've partnered with WWF to create a a certificate around the illegal wildlife trade. And really, if people Google it, it's a free course for two hours. So it's entitled Ending the Illegal Wildlife Trade. And we have four modules that essentially they can learn to identify and stop it. And a lot of this is is aimed at compliance officers in financial institutions, but it's wider. Uh, We've also got a variety of supporters, Unite for Wildlife, the Royal Foundation, and the Basel Institute on Governance, in which we're really partnering with a variety of other people in the, the NGO space to raise 
awareness in both conferences and webinars to essentially identify that this is happening and we can take steps to halt it. Let's assume there's a listener out there that knows of something like this going on. What would you recommend their next step be? If you show up to the local police office here in, in the United States and said, hey, uh, I think someone's smuggling parrots into the into the country, they're, they're like, yeah, whatever. I don't care. You know, I, I, got, I got plenty of things to do. Who would care about this that could be reported to? So, so certainly Fish and Wildlife, probably the forefront uh, law enforcement organization on this. And they're also located globally. They have representatives all over the world in embassies and consulates, uh, but also uh, Homeland Security and Customs. I think if you're in the United States, uh, you certainly elevate the suspicious activity to law enforcement. A lot of times this is very pronounced. We're not talking about a person having a, a particular turtle. It's they have a zoo and you see the importation of tigers. And, and you know, again, United States has a lot of private zoos in which uh, the importation of particular animals it would be inconsistent just because of habitat or just the rare. So certainly there's a whistleblower and tips. Fish and Wildlife is the place to identify and elevate that. And that would be the U.S. Fish and Wildlife, correct? That's correct. Is there anything I'm missing regarding any of this? Red flags that we, that we talked about, Operation Apex we talked about, what ACAMS is doing. Is there anything else I'm missing here? Given your, your law enforcement background is a lot of people don't necessarily think illegal wildlife is a crime. And I think, you know, what you have to understand is these criminal syndicates are stealing from the public good. Mm -hmm. And that hurts us all, whether it's in parks, whether it's uh, another country. They're really degrading the ecosystem. And really, these criminal gangs are getting so much money that they're able to do other crimes, whether it's narcotics or whatever, because it's a, a high reward, low risk game here. And we need to individually take action now. Not only is it a money issue, but my understanding also is when people start bringing in illegal wildlife or other natural resources, in a sense, you're bringing in something into a country that should never be there to begin with. So you ultimately, you possibly could disrupt even the only ecosystem that you have here where it's imported to. Would I be would I be wrong on that one? No, you're absolutely right. Uh, some people will will bring in, let's say, uh, pythons, particular reptiles. There is a big trade of reptiles that come into to the United States, and a python gets too big, people just release it. You have a, a variety of fish that are taking over lakes. If you see this problem also in the criminality of when things are released because the owners can't take care of them anymore, you have other issues that are tangent to the criminality at play here. And it's destruction of the ecosystem. Where can a listener get more information? Are particular out in the public or from ACAMS? Where can they get more information about this? So you can certainly Google ACAMS, Ending Illegal Wildlife. It's a free certificate. Or FATF or WWF, the World Wide Fund for Nature. 
They have a lot of stuff. Again, they're a partner with us and they write all kinds of publications that I think are very useful. Well, Scott, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure talking to you about illegal wildlife trade. I, I didn't realize how big of a problem it was until I went to other places outside the United States. And it's definitely been eye-opening for me, but appreciate your time. Thank you so much for ACAMS and what you guys are doing out there. Thank you, Robert. I appreciate what you're doing. I love the podcast. <laughs> <laughs>